Amen. Our world and our lives are filled with well-meaning, religious, kind-hearted people who believe in a gospel that is very different from what is given by God in the Bible. There are some individuals who more or less believe that God's love is going to overcome almost everyone's evil, and someday most The majority of people will be in heaven. Maybe the really bad ones just won't make it there. There are also individuals who believe that by being a good enough person, you can come to the end of your life, stand before God, and he's going to give you a wink and a nod and say, yeah, you did pretty well. Come on in. So the conclusion that many people have is all you need to do is live just a pretty good life, believe that God exists because he is, And you will be accepted and you will have eternal life. But if you read the Bible, you quickly find out that that is very incomplete. And because it's incomplete, it's not true. So this morning we're coming to our third sermon in Galatians. And what we have been seeing is Paul's care for the Galatian churches. And what he is doing is courageously, boldly, holding to the truth of the gospel so that their eternity is very crystal clear. Just by way of review, I've got a slide up on the screen that Paul's first missionary journey that you can read about in Acts 13 and 14 uh, takes off from this city here in Antioch. That was his home base. Then sailed down to the island of Cyprus and, had some evangelism and missions work there, ended up coming up here to Pamphylia, moving up into this region. And you can see this region here is southern Galatia. This is Antioch of Pisidia here that you'll read about in Acts 13. Then he moved to Iconium, Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe. And by by the time he made it there, he had established or planted these four different churches here comes back, and then ends up in Antioch there. Now, that's Paul's first missionary journey that you see. What happened in each of these cities is that everywhere he met, went, he was met with antagonists. He was met with Jewish leaders who were seeing people leave the synagogues, and because they were leaving Judaism, they were putting pressure, these leaders were putting pressure on Paul and Barnabas. At one point, he was even stoned, taken outside of a city, stoned. They thought he was dead. They walked away, and God healed him, brought him back, went into the city, left town the next day, and headed down to the other city. You might remember the Gatorade illustration that I used on week one. If you take a big barrel of that lime green Gatorade that's at the football games right now, and you empty it halfway and fill it up the rest of the way with lime green engine coolant, you no longer have safe, drinkable Gatorade anymore. You have something that's very deadly. And what was happening was, as Paul was leaving those cities, getting pushed out of those cities, the remaining Christians were being attacked, if you will, by Satan's deception. And Satan's deception was this. Jesus is good. 
Just take them at 50%. We'll take the whole barrel and we'll lower it down to 50%. Take 50% and now we're going to fill it up with other good works that you can do. Religious works, in fact. And what were these religious works? Well, in Galatians, as we saw last week and the previous week, we see several passages throughout Galatians that talks about the Jewish practice of circumcision. Circumcision in the Old Testament, performed on the males, was a sign that you had been brought into the community of God. As long as you had that, you're part of God's family. And so fast forward, what's taking place now is that these Jewish leaders are saying, hey, the law of Moses is still good. It's holy. It points us to God. And so if that's the case, then, yes, you need Jesus as your Savior, but you need more. So let's take up salvation and fill it up the rest of the way, and we'll add in circumcision, and we'll add in observing special Jewish holidays and feasts. So what you have is a gospel of works now. And Paul was coming along and saying, that is not true. Satan is deceiving you. And he says, if somebody comes along preaching a gospel like this, let him be accursed. So in chapter 1, what he does is very quickly through verses 6 through 10, he addresses the problem. They're preaching another gospel. Not that there is another gospel, he says. And then let them be accursed who teaches that gospel. Somebody's going to ask, well, Paul, how do you have the platform of authority to stand up and tell us what the true gospel is? And so for the rest of chapter one, what we covered last week is that Paul shares his testimony that on the way to Damascus, God met him in a very special and unique way. And Jesus spoke to him and said, I'm the one that you're persecuting. And he shared the gospel. Paul says that that's where he heard the gospel. He heard it from God himself. So who is Paul's authority? It's not other religious leaders. It's God himself. And then he moves into chapter 2, really the end of chapter 1 and beginning of chapter 2. And he also has this other platform that he can stand on. And that platform is that the apostles, the disciples of Jesus, have accepted my testimony. They're in unity with me. So we will see that this morning. So... What I want you to walk away from this morning is is seeing this truth that Paul is holding to the gospel. He's holding courageously to the gospel. He's holding to the gospel because he cares about people. So three principles that we'll see as we work through verses 1 through 10 in chapter 2 are these. Number one, the gospel must be proclaimed. Number two, the gospel must be preserved. And then number three, the gospel must be sent out. If we're going to hold to the gospel, as Paul is holding to the gospel in these opening verses here, we're going to see these three principles, that it must be proclaimed, it must be preserved, and it must be sent out. All right, so let's look at point number one. The gospel must be proclaimed. Now, it says in verse one, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and taking Titus. Now, where is he at in his story? In chapter one, he talked about year one, if you will. He's to year 14 now. Year one, what happened then? That's when he was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians. He was a Jew. He was unsaved. He wanted this movement done. 
While he's on the way to Damascus, that's when Jesus appears to him. His belief in Jesus happens there. That's year one. For three years then, he heads out to the desert in Arabia. And don't think necessarily the Arabian Peninsula, Saudi Arabia today. Think east of Israel, current modern day Israel. And that section around it, if you will, was considered Arabia. So for three years, he goes out to Arabia and just studies. Then he comes back into Damascus, where he was actually heading, and starts preaching the gospel there. After a season of time, at the end of Galatians 1, we see that after three years now, so now we're into year three, four, year three or four, he goes up to Jerusalem and he meets with Peter and James there. For 15 days, he has this meeting with them and he's sharing, this is what I'm preaching and there's unity that's there. He heads back to Damascus, possibly Antioch area. You can read about it more now from Acts 9 to Acts 11 and put the pieces together there. For 14 years now, he's ministering and not really interacting with the disciples that we know of. He's preaching the gospel in this other location. Year 14, we come to Galatians 2 verse 1 and he says, I went up again to Jerusalem. And here he is going to Jerusalem, and he's, again, he's building this platform. I want you to know that I've got the real gospel. Here, let me tell you my story. I went up to Jerusalem. And you'll notice that he's got two individuals with him. Who are these two individuals? Number one is Barnabas. I think that if we could meet Barnabas today, we would all like that guy. We would say, man, you need to hang out with Barnabas. Because in Acts 4, he's called the son of encouragement. And he's the guy who sells a field for a lump sum of money, brings it into the disciples at the church in Jerusalem and says, here, perhaps because there were needs in the church. He was just that kind of individual, just a very encouraging kind of man. Now, Barnabas, in Acts chapter 4, we know he's a Jew. It says that he's a Levite from the island of Cyprus. So here's this guy from Cyprus, now over to Damascus, heading down to Jerusalem with Paul, a friend of his. Not only is he taking Barnabas with him, but there's another individual. If Barnabas is on his right side, this other guy, Titus, is with him. Who's Titus? Well, Titus is not a Jew. He's a Gentile. He's a Christian Gentile. And now we know that these two guys... Jew Barnabas, Gentile Titus, are from two very different backgrounds. And the reason why he's going up to Jerusalem, we know, is because that there's a revelation. You can read about that from Acts chapter 11, where a prophet Agabus comes and says, hey, there's some things that are coming. You need to go to Jerusalem to help take care of the poor people. And so that's why Paul is in Jerusalem, because of this revelation. But He's going to accomplish some things while he's there. With Barnabas on his right and Titus on his left, Paul is actually making a statement. So imagine you have two friends, and they're coming up this weekend. One of your friends just happens to be from Ohio, and his favorite outfit to wear is red and silver. Now, for those of you who don't know, that's the Ohio State Buckeyes color, okay? Your other friend 
is from Ann Arbor. And he is wearing blue and maize. And you've got this diehard Michigan fan on one hand and this diehard Ohio State Buckeye fan on the other hand. And what do you do? You walk into church with them into our foyer right out there on Sunday morning. And everybody who's loyal to Michigan here, even if they're a state fan, you have gone way too far now bringing a Buckeye in here. And so all heads are turning towards you. Very awkward. But your point is this. My Buckeye friend and my Wolverine fan friend here can come together at a place like this because there's something more than our preferences that connect us together. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. What Paul is doing is he is proclaiming a message now in Galatians 2 to the apostles. Here's Barnabas here, a man of Jewish heritage. And here's Titus, a man whom we see down in verse 3, who was not circumcised. He doesn't want any of that Jewish stuff from the past. None of that religion. And so he takes them both into Jerusalem, brings them before the apostles, and he says, this is the message that I'm proclaiming up in Galatia. It's that those believers up there who have been taught by the Judaizers that it's 50-50, Jesus and circumcision. No, I am pushing that aside. I'm saying, no, it's not of works at all. It's all of belief in Jesus. That's what salvation is. He's the one who takes away our sins. And so Paul says that he is proclaiming this message. Now, he makes a very interesting statement. He says this in verse 2. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. What does that mean? Is it that Paul is questioning the gospel that he had heard from Jesus on the road to Damascus? Is he starting to have second thoughts about whether or not this is true? After all, he's saying, I didn't want to run in vain. I don't think that's at all the case. If you just go with the context, at the end of chapter 1, Paul had met with Peter and James 11 years earlier in Jerusalem. They were on the same page at that point. However, if he had spent the next 11 years telling people, the gospel of Jesus alone saves you from your sins, and the apostles down in Jerusalem believe it as well, if he had talked about that 11 years ago, but something had changed with the apostles, then he would have been preaching an empty alliance, like we're not together on the same page. Then he would be running in vain in the sense that we're not together on this. So what Paul is saying is, I'm coming up to make sure that we're all together on the same page. Look, Barnabas, he's a believer. Look, Titus is a believer. He's not circumcised. He is circumcised. It's not about Jewish practices from the past. It's about belief in Jesus alone for salvation. Is this the message that you accept? Now, don't miss this. Paul is very clear on the gospel that he proclaims. 
there's a boldness here that he is holding to the gospel. And I think one of the principles that we see here is that he's saying, this is the gospel that I proclaim. What is the gospel? What is the gospel that we are proclaiming? Well, let me just pour scripture over you. He talked about it in Galatians 1, verse 4, at the very beginning of the book, where he says, Jesus Christ, nothing else, but Jesus Christ gave himself up for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Galatians 2, as we'll see in weeks to come, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, not by doing things. But notice, a person is justified, a person is saved through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed, there's faith again, in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Do you see the emphasis on faith, belief? And where is that faith or belief located? Over and over again, located in Jesus, not in works. This is not just found in Galatians. It's found throughout Scripture. Let me give you two more verses. John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in his only Son not in works of the law, should not perish but have eternal life. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, through belief. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, not of good deeds. If you did, you'd be able to boast. So salvation is not of that. It's of faith in Christ so that no one may boast. Do we have an accurate holding of the gospel? Do we have a biblical proclamation of the gospel? In high school, this is something that has stuck with me, a group of friends were hanging out, and I believe the details are fuzzy, but I believe they were hanging out at my house because my parents were involved in this. My parents were, were there, and I was with the group of seniors hanging out, and my mom was there, and one of the gals in the group, her name is Brooke, uh, ended up talking to my mom. Brooke came from what we would call a nominal Christian home. Most, most folks up in Minnesota have, at least at the time, the late 90s, had a religious affiliation, and there was a lot of emphasis on just being good. And so this gal is talking to my mom, and I didn't hear about this until a year later, as you'll hear in the story, but she had grown up in a religious home, and my mom asked her about her Christian faith. Now, young people, you're always concerned about what comes out of your parents' mouths, right, with your friends. And just know that sometimes God is using your parents as a means to just drip the gospel out. So Brooke responded by saying in so many words that she had been a pretty good girl. And my mom told her while I was off with the crew that good works weren't going to get her into heaven, but faith alone in Jesus Christ. Okay, that's my senior year. Didn't know that that had happened, that conversation had happened. The following year, the group gets back together again somewhere 
She had gone off to Penn State, studied there for a year, come back, and she told me about what was going on in her life and how she had just been growing in her understanding of God and the gospel, had plugged into a church out in Pennsylvania, had been a part of Christian clubs on the campus. And I asked her, Brooke, where did this, where did this start? I, did, I didn't hear this before uh, when we were in high school. And she said, it was your mom. Your mom told me that it wasn't my works. And she told me this, when I initially heard that, I was mad at your mom. You can imagine that. Because somebody who has grown up for 17 years thinking, this is my way into heaven, and somebody coming along and saying, well, that's not what the Bible says. Well, who are you to say that? And then she gets more, uh, if you will, Bible and studying the Bible, and she comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And I look back at that, and I think, well, that's a good example of hearing salvation by works, and yet somebody responding and saying, that's not the truth of the gospel. Don't be deceived by that. That's what Paul is doing with this church. Do we have an accurate biblical courage to, to proclaim the gospel? Believe on the Lord Jesus is what Paul says, and you will be saved. Don't depend on your works. You can't depend on your works. So let me just say this. If, if, if you're here this morning, you came in as just somebody who's a friend, or you came in Maybe just by chance in your mind. I don't think it's by chance. God is bringing you here so that the word of God can be open. And you've seen those verses on the screen. That you are only saved by faith in Jesus alone. Christians, are you holding to the gospel in your proclamation with the people around you? Does your life and message demonstrate the gospel? Have your unsaved neighbors and coworkers heard the undiluted the pure gospel that Christ alone saves. I think about it with our church. Does our church demonstrate the true gospel, or do we have subtle messages of other gospels? Folks, in the coming months, the gospel is going to be tested by the divisive nature of elections. And there will be folks who just get wrapped up in this, and that becomes their ultimate. That becomes the jersey that they wear, and they say, this is what I'm standing for. I fully believe that we can have people in this church who could see differently on issues of immigration, who can see differently on issues of a war in Ukraine, who can see differently about things such as having a glass of wine on a Thursday night with your chicken thigh and mashed potatoes versus not having one. And yet, what jersey are you going to wear? Paul is saying, look, here's one guy over here who holds to this preference. Here's another guy over here who holds to that preference. But that is not the ultimate importance. What is important here is Jesus Christ saves people. So I hope that over the next two to three months, and over the next year, our church will demonstrate a sense in which we hold to a, a higher truth of unity, a higher gospel, rather than these peripheral things. 
The gospel is strong enough for Paul to bring Barnabas and Titus into Jerusalem. They recognize each other as members in the body of Christ. And because of their faith in Christ, they have the forgiveness of sins. That's the good news that we proclaim. That's the gospel that we must proclaim. And we must hold to that. Now, since that's the case, since the gospel of Jesus Christ is what truly saves, not these other things, then secondly, the gospel is worth preserving. The gospel must be preserved. So look at verses 4 and 5. He says this. Now, he's up in Jerusalem. He's got Barnabas and Titus on either side of him. He's talking to the apostles, verses 4 and 5. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom. Now, notice the the language, false brothers, secretly kind of slipping in, spying out our freedom, the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. What did they want to do, these false brothers? They wanted to bring us back into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved For you, the folks in Galatia. So here are these false brothers, spies coming into this meeting. How they got in, we don't necessarily know. They want to bring them back into slavery. What's the slavery that they want to bring them back into? Probably circumcision, like that kind of practice. Um, Circumcision comes up quite a bit in Galatians. This is not the last time we're going to talk about it. I just want you to have a right thought on circumcision here. So let me give you just a a quick parallel. As you're reading the Old Testament, and even as you read the New Testament, such as Hebrews, you come across things such as the sacrificial system. And when you read about dead lambs and dead goats and the sacrificial system, and let's just say throughout the Old Testament, I think by now most of you know that those sacrifices are always meant for us to be looking forward to Christ himself. They are a shadow, but the substance is Christ. When we look at circumcision, going all the way back to Genesis 17, where God God instituted it for the people of Israel, Abraham as a sign of them entering into the covenant community, you read about circumcision over and over again throughout the Old Testament. If the sacrificial system is meant for us to be pointing forward to Christ over and over again, I want you to know clearly in your mind, so is circumcision. Circumcision is one of those things where you should read it over and over again throughout the Old Testament and say, wait a second, that's the shadow, but the substance is coming. What's the substance? Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Okay, so he's talking about a spiritual circumcision by the putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So the work that Christ is doing to keep the illustration going is, hey, just as there was a cutting away that marked people in the community of God, Genesis 17, the Old Testament, you need to realize when we talk about circumcision, you need to know that Christ did a work on every one of his people. And he cut away the sin. He cut away the sin that brings judgment. Christ did that work in you. And Paul's like, man, I'm not going back to the shadow. 
I hold to the substance. I hold to Christ. This is my salvation. So Paul says, I'm not going to give the false brothers an inch because I want the gospel to be preserved. What does Paul mean by preserved? When we think of preserved, we think of it's fall season, peaches are coming, peel the peaches, put them in a cork canning jar, seal them up, put them on the shelf down in a dark basement, and only pull them out when you need it. That's what we think of with preserve. Does that make sense, though, that we would preserve the gospel by putting it away and putting it on the shelf? No. The best way to preserve the truth is not by keeping it quiet. The best way to preserve the truth so it goes on for generation after generation, parent to child, grandparent to child to grandchild, is by accurately spreading it and talking about it clearly. 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul speaks of this. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Don't sit on it, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Now look at this next phrase. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. All right, Timothy, here's the gospel. Now guard it. it it's been entrusted to you. So then he goes on, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach what's been entrusted to you. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. When you think about the gospel being preserved, what Paul is talking about is don't let it be diluted. Don't let 50% be taken off and the new 50% being added on. Keep it 100% and then spread it. That's the best way for the gospel to be preserved among people. So we have a question. Are you preserving the gospel by spreading it? Or would your life be characterized by that servant who is given one mina, Luke 19, wrapped it up and went and put it away? Will people around you go to their grave ever having heard the spoken gospel? Or are you preserving it by giving it to them? Are you sharing it with them? And Lord willing that they would preserve it by boldly sharing it with other people. Can you get a vision for that, folks? I mean, I feel like we just need to, in our safety-driven culture where we don't want to offend anyone, like, there's sort of a cultural movement, don't offend me. And yet we know the gospel, it smacks. Because it says, you're wrong, and you need to repent, or else you're going to reap the judgment that you've been earning. The gospel smacks us. 
And yet it's the best smack that we need because without it, we're wandering in error and truth. And yet we live in this culture that is, don't offend anybody. Don't ruffle the feathers. And here's Paul. I mean, you saw the map. And if you go back and just read Acts 13 and 14, everywhere he went, the gospel, not him, the gospel was an offense to people. Get out of our town. Stone him. Persecute him. Listen, may God give us the grace to preserve his gospel by sharing it faithfully. Let me give you one encouragement. Tonight, we're going to be celebrating 101 years of God's faithfulness to our church. So we've been in existence since 1922. So this is not a 100th year birthday. This is 101, okay? I think all of us know that there's not a perfect church around. So by no means am I claiming that Lakeshore has been a perfect church since 1922. But one thing that we can be thankful for is that over the years, God has seen fit to keep the gospel true and proclaimed through this church over and over for decades and decades. And some of you, some of you have heard your stories. We're going to hear some stories tonight about people who've been in this church and how God used the church and how God used the faithful proclamation of the gospel. Please please come back, 5 o'clock tonight. We can't budge on the truth of the gospel. We proclaim it. We preserve it by faithfully sharing it with others. And I just think, parents, this is a responsibility that we have. Do our children know the gospel clearly? For our teachers down that hallway, are we teaching the gospel clearly that is by faith in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of sins? And then as individuals, we have this responsibility, preserve it by sharing it faithfully. Point number three, the gospel must be sent out. We see this in verses six through 10. Verse six, Paul says, and from those who seemed influential to me, seemed to be influential. And now he's talking about the apostles here. Not the false teachers from verses 4 and 5, but the apostles. And they have this this stature, if you will, from those who seem to be influential. What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. You have to love that phrase, don't you? (laughs) I mean, he's not like, yeah, there's the rock stars down in Jerusalem, and I really hold them up. He's like, God shows no partiality. I know that we're all on level ground before the cross. But those, they, they seem to be influential. Those who seem to be influential, they didn't add anything to me. Uh, and nothing of what they preach is going to change me because if they, if they have something different, it's not going to change me. Now, we see two important practices that happens in verses 7 through 9. Look at verse 7. He says this, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, okay, so Peter's main ministry is going to go to the Jews, Paul's main ministry is going to go to the Gentiles, there's certainly overlap that happens there. Verse 8, again, defending his apostleship, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. So he's saying, this is a work of God. God worked on Peter. This is God's plan. Verse 8 or verse 9, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, notice what happens. They gave the right hand of fellowship to, Paul, to Barnabas and me, 
that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So two things that you see here simply. When the gospel is sent out, you see unity. Um, The right hand of fellowship is given. Why? Because they agree on the gospel and God has settled that. And we can have that. We've talked about that through the sermon. The second thing here is mission. Out of that unity, they can go forward in their mission. And what is encouraging here is that the same gospel, belief in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of sins, the one true gospel is the only message that can save diverse people from all over the globe. So Paul's going to go to the Gentiles, and Peter is going to go to the Jews. So let's remember this, folks, that God's message of the gospel is relevant for all people. It is truth for all people. The gospel can save the religious lost individual. It can also save the pagan lost individual. The gospel of Jesus can save the wayward son who's wandered from the church, and it can save the young lady who's been raised in the church and has all kinds of head knowledge and wants to be a people pleaser but doesn't understand Jesus clearly. The gospel can save the CEO of a Fortune 500 company and save the person in poverty out on the streets. It saves the person who has been religious, it saves the person who hasn't had a care of religion. The message of the gospel is the one truth that can go out and be the salvation for any person in the world. And so we as a church, we come around that and we say, yes, we believe that. We believe in the power of this truth. And as individuals then, we must be behind the gospel in some way saying, how do we get this out? How do we send this out? And so every Sunday, we pray for somebody at the beginning of the service who is some part around the globe. Today, Jordan and Jossie in the Philippines trying to get this camp started so that people in Southeast Asia can hear the gospel. So the gospel must be sent out. And then verse 10, he says, Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. And as you read Acts 11, you can see here that while all of the poor should be on our minds, Acts 11 that correlates with this is especially the poor in the church, the saints in Jerusalem who were going through famine, they needed to be cared for. So from verses 1 through 10, we see Paul holding to the gospel. He's prioritizing it. It goes above the differences that we have. The apostles saw his desire for the gospel. They affirmed his ministry. This was going to be further truth, proof, if you will, to those churches in Galatia that we saw up on the screen. And what we see from Paul's life is that he is holding to the gospel. He will not let it go. Now, I know that there was an event yesterday a barn-raising event, and many of you were there for it. And these big old timber ties had to go up into the air, and there were ropes, and there were poles, and many of you were holding to those ropes, many of you were holding to those poles. You're holding to it because it has meaning. This is the gospel. We hold this up. We, we send it out. It's our turn to preserve it by spreading it. So our world, our lives are filled with well-meaning, religious, kind-hearted, or not kind-hearted people who believe in a gospel that is different from what is given to us by God in the Bible. 
And what we see here in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2 is that we must hold to the gospel by proclaiming it faithfully, by preserving it accurately, and by spreading it continually with our lives. Are we willing to hold to that gospel this week? Let's pray.